0: Aloha, and welcome to Conversations to Enlighten and Heal. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Eldon Taylor. Conversations is sponsored by HealthMasterySystems.com, Holistic Products for Body, Mind, and Soul, and PurePlanEssentials.com, Organic Aromatherapy. Please visit these websites today. My guest today is Dr. Eldon Taylor, host of the popular radio show, Provocative Enlightenment, and an award-winning New York Times best-selling author. His most recent books include Choices and Delusions, Mind Programming, and What Does That Mean? Eldon is the inventor of the patented Intertalk technology and founder and president of Progressive Awareness Research Incorporated. More than 20 scientific studies have been conducted evaluating Eldon's technology, proving its power and success. Eldon is a fellow in the American Psychotherapy Association, an internationally sought-after speaker, and his books and audio-video programs have been translated into more than a dozen languages, which have sold millions worldwide. Dr. Taylor's newest book, What If? The Challenge of Self-Realization, has just been released by Hay House Publishers, which will we will discuss on today's show. For more information about Dr. Eldon Taylor, his Intertalk products and services, and to sign up for his free Intertalk newsletter, please visit his website, EldonTaylor.com. That's EldonTaylor.com. Please welcome to the show my very special guest, Dr. Eldon Taylor. Welcome to the show, Eldon. Thank you so much for taking time to join us.
1: Oh, it's indeed my pleasure, and I'm honored to join you. you you. You're a great host, and uh, we always have fun, and I look forward to our conversations.
0: Yes, and I haven't talked with you in quite a while, and so it is a delight to reconnect. I enjoyed your Hay House radio show this week on Provocative enlighten- Enlightenment, and I thought I'd start off in a provocative way with you on today's okay. show, if you don't mind. Fair <laughs> I enjoyed your discussion with your guest, Dr. T. Lee Bauman, about the afterlife and near-death experiences, NDE, and you both seem to agree with the supposition that the Creator or God is light, and I agree that all of creation is made of light, and And I see this as the universal mind of God, if you will, which is beyond time-space as we know it. However, the origin of light, I believe, is sound, which ancient spiritual traditions, such as uh, I've studied Tibetan Zhongshan, for for one, a spouse and in the Bible is referred to as first there was the word. And I equate this sound or word with the first movement or vibration. And as we know, all vibration emits a sound frequency. The sound has also been referred to as music of the celestial spheres. Before the first sound which sang and is continuing to sing all of creation into to being, there was only the great and pregnant void which has been referred to as the eternal mystery and the mother of God out of whose womb all creation sprang. What do you have to say about this, Eldon?
1: Well, this is what I have to say about that. Bauman and I agreed from a perspective of physics. When you talk about sound, you are talking about the you know, electromagnetic continuum, you are talking about light. For all intents and purposes, uh, I, I don't disagree. In the beginning, the Lord said, spoke mm-hmm. the creation epics, uh, whether it is the uh, Vedantic literature or the, the Jewish literature or the Christian literature. But throughout the world, the literature uh, con- concurs with what you are saying. Essentially, in the beginning... There is, in the words of physics, singularity. We say God. Singularity divides itself and creates all things. From no thing, nothing, everything. Uh, You know, there's there's a great uh, teleological and ontological discussion that could flow from uh, your opening statements. But uh, with respect to Dr. Bauman, Uh, what we were discussing and what we agreed was energy, which is light, in the Einsteinian equation, E equals mc squared, energy is the source. All that we know as matter is a result of energy. All that we know as matter eventually collapses back into energy. So rather than discuss light or sound, because sound is just a narrow part of the electromagnetic continuum, and the electromagnetic continuum is generally thought of in physics as light or energy, Uh, rather than discuss it in terms of fractions, let's just change it and say energy. That's what Bauman and I were agreeing on. Now, when you think about consciousness, consciousness itself, ideas, ideas, um, their their energy in and of themselves. So when you're thinking about the mind or the collective unconscious, and now we can get into many other metaphors, we're really speaking about <coughs> a uh, philosophical uh, dichotomy here. If in the beginning, as most Christians, Protestant, Catholic, uh, Calvin, uh, Lutherans, etc. would have it, Uh, there is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the creation of man. We cannot have everything in the body of God. God exists, and man exists externally from that. Now, if you were to follow some of the um, philosophy or philosophical thought of uh, the mystics such as Plotinus or uh, Meister Eckhart, then you see that the reason Meister Eckhart was considered to be a heretic, although he was a staunch uh, Catholic at the time, is because from Plotinus's writings, from the writings of Aristotle, from the logic of it all, he essentially saw that Well, in the beginning there is only God, so all of creation must have come from God, or again in physics, singularity, and that would mean that it exists within each and every one of us. Mm -hmm. And and in that sense, we're not the pitiful, pithy creature dependent upon only grace uh, that we can't possibly earn uh, for salvation. Instead, we are ourselves living in the body of God, a part of God, which dwells within us, the kingdom of heaven within. So, y- now, <laughs> you have opened one of my favorite subjects, uh, something we could spend the entire hour talking about, but, uh, you know, that's how I answer that.
0: Well, it, it is, it, it you know, there is really, ultimately, there is no the answer. I think that really, truly living into your life is the answer, uh, with co- as much awareness and consciousness
1: as you can. Well, th- you know, I totally agree. Indeed, Eric Fromm said the quest for certainty blocks the search for meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, uncertainty is the very condition that impels us to unfold our powers. I don't, you know, I don't believe there is such a thing as an epistemological certainty mm-hmm. that we can. And I craft. think the universe would
0: collapse if there was.
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if it would collapse. Well, I mean, if we
0: knew, if the mystery were solved, what more would there be? I mean, well, what,
1: it, how it, would it even up. continue
0: if it yeah. suddenly summed itself up? Oh, here's the answer. Maybe that's the black hole. Maybe that's when it
1: starts. I think Kierkegaard said it best in his theistic existentialism. He, he essentially points out to us that look, if you knew absolutely for certain there was a God. Or, if you knew absolutely for certain without a doubt there wasn't a God there would be nothing to believe there would be nothing to have faith in
2: mm-hmm. there would be
1: nothing to aspire mm-hmm. there would be no reason for being mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: yes and and you said you know I don't think you really meant only grace because grace is such an important element of what is going on here
1: well you see again now That's a semantics. If you're going to be a scholar of uh, the difference between, say, Catholicism and Protestantism, if you're going to look, for example, at uh, the Reformation, you're going to have to understand that what separates those two is this notion of grace. According to the Catholics, you can earn grace. Uh, It was this notion that you could buy grace. Uh, earn grace that that caused the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther didn't intend to separate from the Catholic Church. He intended to end this notion of buying grace, purchasing it. Calvin made it very, very clear that uh, man can't earn grace. Um, you know, for all intent and purposes, grace is given to us by God, and. But, you know, the modern theologians say, well, well, certainly, if we receive the grace from God, this is just given to us, like Christ gave his life for us, just a gift, not that we earned it, not that we deserved it, but just given to us. If it's just given to us, when we receive it, honestly receive it, certainly we must be more worthy of it. Certainly we must have improved some. But it is this dichotomy between whether you can earn grace or grace is just given to you, you can't possibly earn it because you can't deserve it in any way, shape, or form that separates the Reformation. So you know, words can have very precise meanings. If we are discussing theology and we use the word grace, it has a very precise context
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, regarding you know, the Reformation. If on the other hand, we're in parlance, new age parlance, and we're just talking about uh, the grace of, of God uh, that we enjoy our lives and, and can discover a meaning to it, well that's that's a different meaning.
0: Mm-hmm. Depending upon the context?
1: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, absolutely. So you know all I mean by the qualification is understand that. Uh, This is a theological term that has a very definite reference, and Mm -hmm. and in that reference, it's not it's not just you know grace as we think about it in New Age parlance.
0: Yes, well, I just I'm fascinated by grace. You know how it how there is this miraculous. You know, for me, it's like sometimes there's like the tensions of the opposites. You know, Have you ever heard of, of the Carl Jung talking about the mark of the initiate was being able to contain the opposites, to contain the tension, and then out of that was this third thing he called grace, that there would be a resolution. There would be a transcendent state that would be achieved, and that you would evolve through holding these tensions of opposites, that you would become an adept. It would be something that would open you up to be able to contain more understanding and wisdom.
1: You know, that's the obviously, that is the Hebrew. uh, It comes from the Kabbalah, it is the rectification of opposites, it is uh, the middle pillar Uh, in the Hindu. Buddhist faith, it is the middle path, it is the entire notion Buckminster Fuller put forward of thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. And what you're looking to do is walk in synthesis. You're looking for the rectification of opposites.
2: Mm-hmm. The
1: Tao, for all intents and purposes, is about the rectification of opposites. Well, don't you think that's, that's, the that's the what answer. we
0: need to be doing right now in order to find the, the, the synthesis we need? For harmony to begin to, to move to a new level as humanity, so that we can live together in peace and really walk in a new way on the planet.
1: I think. you I mean, that is the reason I wrote the book. What if? I mean, you know, the title, uh, "What If," uh, the challenge of self-realization. You know, the first first thing you have to understand is, okay, look, if I want to self-actualize, you know. And I satisfied my lower hierarchy of needs, according to Maslow's theory. And, and now, you know, I'm really looking to the meaning of life. I, I, I really want to explore my own being. I want to self-actualize. I have to ask myself, what is myself? You know, what, what is it that I'm going to actualize? And you see, part of our problem is, we have this huge fractionation within ourselves we uh, yes. you know, I, I live in Washington state and I've got a little bit of a horse farm and I could tell you if I put on my cowboy boots and my hat and my chaps and I start out to hook the horse trailer up her, her, her demeanor things change everything <laughs> changes I have a friend that's a psychologist and a radio show host that rides a Harley and when she puts on her Harley shafts and her helmet she changes we all have experienced that and and the problem isn't that, you know, that we change. The problem is why do we change? And what is it we change into? Let me give you a case in point. I have a minister friend that on Sunday you would believe he is Mother Teresa. In his church, uh, this is the softest spoken, most loving, gentlest person in the world. But outside of his church, you get him in a discussion about politics. He is nasty. He, he is vulgar. He, he is absolutely convinced of his opinion in politics, and to him, they're two different lives. Well, they're really not two lives. You see, we'll, we'll never really get ourselves together, we'll really never know ourselves until we unite all these images, all these fractions that we have of ourselves. And that's, that's a process of discovery. You know, Most people are going to say, I know myself, I know who I am. Um, You know, I've been through this. I've done that. Uh, And the hard research, as you know, shows us that you're not likely to know yourself at all. What you believe that you think you're certain of, well, you know, you're really not certain of. Uh, You're likely to think you make your own decisions, and you don't make your own decisions. They've been made for you. Uh, You're likely to be unaware of the power of your own unconscious, that adaptive unconscious that puts you on automatic, doing automatic things all of the time and thereby betraying yourself. In short, you're going to underestimate yourself in every possible way. As Emil said, our greatest illusion is to believe that we are what we think ourselves to be. So indeed, in the book What If, what I decided to do is create thought experiments. You know, now a thought experiment. We do thought experiments in science all the time. You might do a thought experiment actually before you started a dissertation project or a major study of some kind, and and you would do it as well in chemistry or physics as you would in psychology or some uh, social science. All right. Mm-hmm. So what I did was create twenty-two thought experiments to show you every individual that we hold mutually exclusive beliefs. That we don't, we fail to see. And because we hold these beliefs, we behave differently. And because we behave differently, we end up with, you know, I I hear more and more from uh, people that I talk to the the same thing. You know, a saying that goes something like, I just don't know who I am anymore. I'm so busy as with uh, parenting or, or my job or finances or housekeeping or the pressures or running from here to running to there that I've lost myself. I, I just don't know who I am anymore. Well, the fact of the matter is that's true of the vast majority of people. And the result is often this adaptive unconscious, this automatic process, all these implicit uh, you know uh, decisions that we make that are based on soundbite reasoning, and and what I call we just become falsophrenic. We become frantic in our, our needs to run here, go there, do this, learn this, acquire this information, buy this, do that, and and false to ourselves because we haven't stopped, you know? If you woke tomorrow, KG, and you had complete amnesia <laughs> and you stood in front of the mirror. And and you vaguely recognized yourself, but that is it. Uh, you had no other recollection. What would be the most important thing to you? Discovering who you are, of course. That'd be the most important thing. That would be the all-abiding thing. Who am I? What is it I like? We're, we're, you know, what what do I believe? I mean, you know, uh, that's that's the last thing. You know, Mark Twain tells a wonderful little story that is passed around, and I know everybody has heard, in his book, Letters to Earth, uh, where for all intent and purposes uh, he discusses how God was hidden, and of course it couldn't be the bottom of the sea or in deep space, etc., because uh, man was created he eventually would discover God. So uh, instead, God was hidden within man. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we all know that story and we're all aware that you know that's the last place people are inclined to look but what they're last inclined to look for there is themselves
2: well it's very
0: interesting that we what you're saying uh, people, actually have a lot of opinions about themselves though and they don't know who they are but yet they have all these self judgments because I think there is so much that is what I've found as a practitioner and it's helped me really evolve in my own sense of compassion for people because people don't realize that through their behaviors, their actions they're really saying what they think about themselves the opinions they have about themselves how little self-regard they have for themselves how little they trust themselves and they don't know that
1: You know, and they're sold to be in that place. That's the other thing they need to understand. Listen, we have two kinds of programming. We have the organic programming, of course, you know, our enculturation, our peers, uh, our educational system, uh, which teaches us, you know, the names and dates and places stuff, not how to think, but how to memorize, Uh, our legal system, our our ethnocentric uh, biases. We have that in but we also have an overt programming going on today, and that overt programming is designed to keep us in a heightened state of arousal. Mm -hmm. Now, that's what most people miss. But by keeping you in this heightened state of arousal, by creating this anxious state, and you know, a heightened state of arousal, what is that? I mean, in primitive man, we have the fight, flight. It's fight, flight.
0: It's reactive, it's a totally reactive state.
1: That's right. And in modern man, we think of fight-flight as, well, there is, you know, fight still. But flight is really anxiety and depression more than it is anything else. Well, keeping somebody in this heightened state of anxiety keeps us provoked. And by doing so... There's we, something always threatening us. Yes, and... And, not and we're all self medicate I mean, look at There's how the proliferation of drugs to, to self-medicate. Right. That's right, and, th- and that's the reason. Somebody has got the cure for the threat, and that's that's why we're kept there. Look, mm-hmm. you know, the Gombo coming to town, but here's the cure. You know, taxes are too high, but the politician will fix it. Uh, you, you look at everything out there. Today, we think of that as neural marketing, because that's precisely what it is. Mm-hmm. Most people don't know that Bernays, the father of modern marketing, the father of scientific marketing, the author of the book Propaganda, with Sigmund Freud's nephew. And he says, you know, to himself, hey, look, Uncle Freud has got this right. Now, if I can just figure out how to plumb the unconscious, I can get people to do what I want them to do without them knowing I'm doing it. In fact, they'll think that they're making the choice to do it. Mm-hmm. And so Bernays set off this whole thing. If you read the book Propaganda, it isn't just about marketing, it's about governance of the world. How the, the otherwise unleadable, illiterate masses can be orchestrated to follow like a herd of sheep. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's, that's, that's Bernays' objective. Now, Today, as I said, we see it as neuromarketing. Neuromarketing, instead of using primitive things like GSR and pulmonary uh, measurements to get biofeedback uh, from different stimuli, uh, we use something like functional magnetic resonance imaging, where we have a live picture of what's going on in the brain as different the associations people uh, are making. Is presented. And <laughs> so we learn things like, look, if you show the Surgeon General's warning on a pack of cigarettes to a smoker, the nucleus accumbens, one of the reward centers in the brain, lights up. To use the words of PET and, and MRI.
0: Because they have a, they've been programmed to have a neuroassociation with that as a pleasure.
1: And what's it? That's right. It causes them to want to smoke more. So what does that tell tobacco companies? Make it bolder. Put it on more sides of the pack. See, and that's how we're sold everything. You know, we get. We get lots of framing and lots of, of context, and and I, you and I have discussed the spit analogy before, have we not? I mean, just re- really quickly, think of the saliva in your mouth. Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it's, you but ahead. I'm not.
0: I'm not your. I'm I'm a long time meditator. I have, <laughs> I have a stronger observer self. So I, after years of working with people, I I see a lot of patterns and stuff. I'm,
1: you, you know, so I'm care. not a
0: good test subject.
1: Okay, but think of the <laughs> saliva in your mouth for a second anyway, all right? Let's just make this analogy clear to our listeners. Okay. Um, your saliva in your mouth is good. You're glad you have it. You know, I couldn't be talking to you right, right now. That's I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. Okay, dry mouths are uncomfortable. All right, imagine now I have this small shot glass and I just spit a little bit of that saliva into the shot glass. I look at it, maybe I tip it to see if there's an air bubble or something, but I don't keep it in that glass more than three or four seconds and I drink it back. And now, It's somehow, disgusting. That's right. In my mouth, <laughs> the saliva is wonderful, but in that shot glass, it's, it's disgusting, it's vile. Well, <laughs> framing context is what neuromarketers work at doing all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the other day, you know, I happened to catch. I in the morning when I'm dressing, I have television, uh, and I get the morning news, and I and I flip between channels because one of the things I try to do is pay attention to how. Things get placed in frames or context. And on one station there was a poll being conducted, and the poll was all about poor taxpayers having to reimburse the rich with school vouchers because they put their kids in private schools. Okay? The next I flipped the station and the poll was all about poor taxpayers having to pay twice for their child's education going without sacrificing, working two jobs in order to be able to give their children a head start because our public education system was failing. Now look, there's two ways of presenting the same issue. School vouchers. If you happen to be attending to one channel and you hear that framework, you go away with a soundbite tune. School vouchers—they suck. I mean, why should I? I'm just a working-class person. Be paying for these private schools—that doesn't make any sense. That's got to be another one of those richie schemes, see? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's really blind to the issue. Let me give you—let me give you a real one, shot across the bow because we do this 22 times in the book. This book is not for someone that expects to have a, a feel-good experience. It can be disturbing, this book.
0: Let me tell listeners what we're talking about. Eldon has a new book being released. Uh, There's a major launch on March 29th uh, entitled What If? The Challenge of Self-Realization. And that's what we're talking about, sort of the subject matter of the book. And it is a disturbing, self-revealing look into our inner workings. In our, in our mind and how we really are subject to being manipulated uh, by external because we have certain identifications and identify ourselves in certain ways to anchors outside of ourselves so that we can those are are manipulates we're mani- we're like a puppet it's like a string right well, would I, you say it's like that it's like somebody pulling
2: your I string
1: <laughs> I, I absolutely would and, and everybody will say well not me. And that's why I wrote this book. You know what? I like what Michael Beckwith said about it. I mean, he says, I highly recommend this book to those who are unflinching in their journey to the authentic self. Mm
2: -hmm. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. recommend
1: it to anybody else. But okay, here, let's take one of these on. Heads on. Okay? We're talking about context. We're talking about how things get framed. Okay? Here's a thought experiment for you. We do lots of them. Okay? So imagine you're a police officer. You're responding to a domestic call. Uh, you arrive at the home, you knock on the door, a woman pulls the door open, she's an older woman, uh, she is sobbing, I mean she is sobbing so hard she's shaking, trembling.
2: You can't
1: get her to answer a question, she's just just out beside herself. You look into the living room and you see uh, a young woman, uh, maybe she's a late teenager, 17, 18 years old, she's sitting in the chair. The feeder up on the ottoman, and there next to her on the ottoman is a newborn baby.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Newborn. Uh, the, the newborn is changing colors. You can see that from the doorway. You rush inside, it's turned blue, purplish. There is a, a, a bag, a plastic bag, tied over its head. It has choked to death. And 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 here you are, you're a police officer, you're standing there, and here is this newborn baby laying on the ottoman. The umbilical cord is still attached to mom. Mom's feet are on the ottoman next to the baby, the baby is dead, and you know that in the state you live, that there is a law that has been passed designed to protect midwives and doctors, that essentially says it's not alive so long as it's dependent upon the mother. And the point at which we can decide it's no longer dependent is when that umbilical cord is severed. Uh-huh. Until and unless it's severed, it's not alive.
2: Uh-huh.
1: You're this cop. Now, I want you to imagine you're this cop. I mean, I really want you to take on this role. You're this cop, and not only are you this cop, but you and your wife or you and your husband have been going to a fertility clinic. You have been doing everything you can do to try and have a child yourself. You've even thought about adopting, and here's this beautiful baby with this, this plastic bag tied over its head, uh, sucked halfway into its mouth, and a child that if it gassed any air at all, it had plastic in it. How do you feel? Now just hold that feeling for a minute, because now, I want you to imagine you're going to the station you're going to write this report up. You're going to go home and you're going to tell your spouse what it was you saw. You know, you have some real choices here. Maybe you you think this is just bullshit and you sever the cord and you claim that the cord was severed when the child was born because you're going to take justice into your own hand. You're that righteously indignant about what happened. And maybe not. Maybe it's just, you know, like a speeding ticket, another bump in the road and days worth of work. Right. It depends on your associations that you have going on
0: yourself how you're going to perceive and give interpretation meaning
1: to... Oh, absolutely. You have to take on the role. But now let's pursue this. Let's go to the state of California. In the state of California, if you kill a pregnant woman, She just came from the doctor's office. She just learned, barely, that she's three weeks pregnant. Yeah. That's a double homicide. You have killed two. You will be tried and charged and sentenced according to a double murder. Mm -hmm. But if you're the mother and you're eight months pregnant, uh, you can get relatively easy a late-term abortion, legally. Now... Here we have an issue that is described over and over as pro-life and pro-choice. And this is not an issue about pro-anything. This is an issue about what constitutes life. Whether you're the police officer and an umbilical cord's attached so we just suffocate the child, or it's a double homicide because it's in the womb of a mother and it's only three weeks old, or it's a legal abortion. The issue is the same. It's not about pro-life or pro-choice. It's about what constitutes a life and at what point do we protect it. But we don't think that way. And because we as individuals don't think that way, we have this dissonance in uh, our own heads and unaware of it. Depending upon the context. context, In this context it it means this, and this it's that. That's right. That's absolutely right. But now you could take that one and you can change it over a little bit. Definitions define everything.
0: Well, I had a I had a situation this week that I'm still in shock about,
1: uh-huh. where
0: there is a member of our team, and to me, working in team, I love working in team because I've always been a very the one who's responsible. So it's so wonderful to share responsibility. Right. <laughs> I just have my thing I'm responsible for, right? Not the whole thing, and it's oh, yeah. wonderful to ha- share that responsibility. Right. But uh, there's a member of the team who she's always likes to be the best and who's right, and it's like I'm looking at this. What is this? What is this teaching me? Who is it? this person? Is there helping me to learn things? here and uh, this person deceived the whole team that she had this PowerPoint presentation and I was going to edit a few slides out for this new teaching we were going to do that's coming up this coming weekend and it never materialized and we're talking the 22nd of February it was supposed to be handed over to me and all this time I'm waiting, waiting, waiting it never materializes finally this week she sends me this bogus viewer of a Windows media viewer, and it says here it is And it was it was nothing. It was just this you know, the button that you usually push for Windows viewer to open. It was right. not a PowerPoint. And so then she said, Well I'd have to create it. And she had deceived the whole team that she had this PowerPoint her presentation I was gonna edit. It will only take you know, and I volunteered to do that. Well I had to spend two days creating a PowerPoint presentation so that we would be able to do. And she says, I should be grateful (laughs) that, you know, I had this opportunity to serve the community. And she's not taking, I mean, it's like, I just don't I mean to me this is kind of reflecting what you're talking about about. how do I this is an ethical dilemma for me it's like should I even be on this team I mean should what is this how do I what do I learn from this and how do I grow from this that I stand up for what is in this that I'm supposed to learn so that good is served. Good things come out of this rather know. than just sweeping it under like she's, d- she didn't just deceive everybody.
1: You know, obviously, what you are learning is a little bit of self reliance. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And that's unfortunate. Uh, and and you get the opportunity. But self reliance for everybody. <laughs> 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 I mean, I'm the one that
0: has to stand up, and I'd ha- wind up being in a situation where I'm the one who's responsible that we have a PowerPoint suddenly.
1: Right and you know you do have the decision you do have to make that choice because it's yeah. somebody that I want to play with you know I can think of and I'm not going to name him but I can think of a great football player was one of the greatest to ever play uh, Heisman uh, trophy award winner that went to the Dallas Cowboys years ago that would not play team football mm-hmm. and so as good as he was as many records as he had set mm-hmm. he was cut by Tom Landry and, and most of the people around uh, didn't understand how you could let a, a running back of this caliber just go. But if you can't play team football, it, you know, if you can't be a member of the team, you don't belong on the team. It's that simple. Now, your real question in my book on this one—okay—do you call her on it or not? You see, look—is it my place to call her on are it? Are you going to be the? to Tom Landry and stand up to her and say, okay, look, you let the team down, period, and you're going to say this in front of the rest of the team. You let the team down. You put the onus on me about this. If you're going to be a member of this team, we don't expect this to ever happen again. If if it's going to be a problem, then you need to leave this team. Uh, And if that's not acceptable to the rest of the team, if you don't want to be a team member, then I'm going to leave the team. I mean that's what's really in your hands. Yes. see, you know, not long ago, and, and forgive me, I'm just going to, I mean, you brought this subject up, I posted on my Facebook page something I thought was totally unacceptable. Bill Maher commenting about Sarah Palin. Now this is not about Sarah Palin. I am not a Sarah Palin fan so you Palin haters don't go calling me. <laughs> I, I, I'm neither way about Sarah Palin. You know, I, I don't know enough about her but this is what I do know. Anytime you call a woman in public a twat, you you have crossed the line. Yes. Yeah. That's a discriminatory sexist vulgarity. Period. End End of quotation. Now I happened to post that. That's how I felt about that. This fellow, this was unacceptable. This had crossed the line, because it's a slur to all women. Okay, there are words that are the counterpart to that to men, and I can't imagine you know it, it just sliding if it were to be used against you know President Obama as a case in point, or or you know a governor. Pick a governor. Okay. So this isn't about politics this is about protocol this is about civility the number of people that responded with do you know what a bad person she is or did you know that she has crosshairs in her commercials and you know justifying the vulgarity right was, was just astounded me you know it all comes down to this look if If you're going to take responsibility for what's in your world, you're going to take responsibility. You're going to speak out about it. If if you don't like it, if you think the laws are wrong, you're you're going to do what you can to address that issue. If you're going to acquiesce on your sofa in front of your television going into alpha being hypnotized by the commercial, well then you're giving what John Locke called passive consent to the world. Don't That's exactly it. About it That's, because you're yes. allowing it to happen. Yes. All right. You're in that tacit consent place. Mm-hmm. You either. That's decide, why I'm feeling it
0: is a moral dilemma.
1: Well. You know
0: right. that I I can't. There's something I need to do. Although I'm not like the. But you're
1: not being spiritually honest. Yes. You're not being honest to yourself through and through. One kg. If you don't say something about it. Mm -hmm. So the moral dilemma isn't really a dilemma because you know it disturbs you, it bothers you, you want to say something about it, you want to do something about it, you don't want it to happen again. And you're not spiritually going to grow because you ignore it. That's one of the points I try to make in the book. Look, Mm -hmm. I do believe that the spiritual element in life is quintessential to, to... our highest expression Absolutely Absolutely. I think that's what people people, that is
0: at the root uh, in my opinion why we're in some of the situations we're in because people do not recognize that they are spiritual beings
1: I concur totally and as a spiritual being we're responsible in all walks of our life we're not just spiritual as I told you about this pastor friend of mine on Sunday inside the cathedral Mm-hmm. Everything that's going on in the world is is being presented to us to make a decision. Mm-hmm. Everything's a choice. It's not being presented as background while we read our Bible or our Koran or our Bhagavad Gita. This Bible is what I was referring to. It, it right is here. showing up and living the answer. That's absolutely right. And, and And I love what you say because I say it all the time. Living into yourself is a process of engaging in this world, looking at these dilemmas, mm-hmm. sorting through them, getting past all the the nonsense and the and the framing and the context and the definitions, getting to the core of the issue and then coming to your own conclusion and being willing to express that. Mm-hmm. And until and unless we in the world decide to be that through and through there is no such possibility as peace. We will continue to carry out inane actions in a falsifrenic way. And now we what have mean? so many of
0: us on the planet, it can't go on.
1: Yeah, it's
0: just yeah. too, the multiplicity is just too, can't be absorbed.
1: No. And one other thing on this Palin thing, you know, while we're on that, if you ask people about Sarah Palin, they all know one thing. And that's that she can see Russia from her kitchen. Now, she never said that. The so Saturday Night Live did a great job at pinning it on her. You know, I heard the other day a campaign to eliminate the word illegal and replace it with <laughs> undocumented having to do with immigrants. And Megan Kelly responded by, Well, why don't we just call a rapist a non-consensual sex partner? You see, <laughs> definitions do matter. You remember the. Yes. Security well, defense. I know Carolyn Mays. You know Carolyn
0: Mace. I mean, she goes on and on about, she loves words, and she goes on and on about how we've, you know, we've stricken certain words that served us out, right. out of our vocabulary, such as conscience. That's
1: right. And that's a very important one. And, and we have made light of other words like imagination. Um, because you know, child does all this imagination, this daydreaming, and that's so wasteful. Well, you I love also thinking out of the box comes from. It. Yes, well,
0: well, look Bruce Lipton he talks about our imaginal cells, how important it is, and so I feel he's giving a new birth to a different way of looking at imaginations through this. You know that we have imaginal cells and how important. That is to have these imaginal cells. Mm -hmm. We need to have fresh imaginings. I mean, otherwise, you know, we keep going down the road we're going. I mean, Mm -hmm. look at all the. I mean, I can hardly get a movie that does not have some sort of vulgarity or violence, or Mm -hmm. uh, where I feel accosted and I have to protect myself. (laughs) I don't want to watch that.
1: You say that, K.G. I mean that again. That comes back to you know the consumer. That comes back to all of us. I mean, they the need over that overstimulation title, like, like you're talking, talking about. about. Yeah. But the masses they they're not interested in uh, entertainment unless it uh, causes an arousal. Yes, that
2: if stimulation no
1: arousal then mm-hmm. hey, it's boring. Mm-hmm. And and we see more and more of the younger generation because of all the multi stimuli, including the MMORPG role playing games, you know, multiplayer role playing games on the internet. Uh, that that require additional stimuli. And people don't realize what that translates to. But you know, here's a graphic. Sylvester Stallone in First Blood originally made in 1982. There was one bad guy killed in the entire movie and he wasn't killed until 29 minutes into the movie.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And... Rambo 2, 12 were killed, and Rambo 3, by 88, 33. By the time we get to 2008, the number of bad guys killed, 236, and the first one's killed in 3 minutes and 22 seconds of the movie. And the same thing has happened with sex. Back in the 50s, Marilyn Monroe might pass over a vent in the sidewalk with air blow up and her skirt flare out. Well, we'd hardly call that tintillating today, All we have to do is look at primetime TV and we see what's there. The problem with all of this is it not only desensitizes systematically our threshold of arousal, but it desensitizes our emotive response. We begin to take for granted that violence is normal and ordinary, that getting even... Well, that's okay. Of course it's okay. I mean, look at our movies. It's okay to get even. That becomes a new slogan. We we have a complete decay of our value system to say nothing of our conscience that is systematically assailed and degenerated as a result of that. What is there to do? Well, you can complain or you can... You can do what you can do if by no other means than don't go to the movie. Don't turn on that TV show.
0: Yeah, I mean, how, you know, that's it's kind of like organic food. You go vote by buying organic, <laughs> you know, what you buy, you know. That's
1: right. You know, I mean, hey, they respond to the pocketbook. I mean, that's. All this neuromarketing is about selling you goods, and if you keep buying it, well, they'll keep selling it to you. And if that ad worked, they'll do another one like it. And if it doesn't work because, well, you, you now find that racy gal that was in that uh, short skirt, uh, not so racy, well, then we'll go find somebody that will lay across the car in, in oil and a tiny bikini. <laughs>
0: It has gotten pretty over the top, but people are so you know, I mean I think that people are so barra- it's is such a barrage of it that people you know, most people they're just you know, they don't know. They it's just dumb. don't know that it's over the top. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why people because our most valuable our minds are sacred territory we need to protect our minds that is our focusing vehicle for being able to create and manifest in the world we are manifestors and it's through our focusing ability that we manifest and if people are distracted and they aren't able to focus what are they going to be able to create and manifest
1: except what they're being fed that's right our self-talk our stream of consciousness is manifesting all the time. It's, a, it's All the time. 24-7 prayer, mm-hmm. period, and mm-hmm. of quotation. Mm-hmm. And if you think of it that way, some of the things that you might be praying for, you want to arrest right away, especially those things that you started out with, KG, where I'm not any good, You know, I'm not smart enough, all the negative talk. That,
0: that and a lot of that is
1: unconscious, you know. Well, well, it is conscious as soon as I pay attention to it.
0: Yes. Well, I don't think people pay attention. I think that's the thing.
1: But if they did, they would begin to correct it, and that becomes mm-hmm. critical. You know, look, all the stimuli flies that we are not paying attention; we're on automatic. But do you they
0: think also people be- don't people believe what it is? That's why they don't pay attention to it. Maybe they believe they are a bad person and so they don't pay attention yes, to that. They're, they're talking they that way to themselves.
1: Yes, they do. They've taken it aboard. They've been conditioned to believe it. I mean, <laughs> not much different than Pablo's dogs. Ring the bell and they salivate. I mean. You know, we, we are—we have been trained like maize-bright rats to behave in certain ways. And all this stimulus, all this overload of stimulus that we fail to identify, that has heightened our arousal, well, I'll tell you what it does. It causes physiological disease, yes. psychological symptoms. Indeed, yes. Philip Zimbardo, the past president of the American Psychological Association, says that they've found... The pathological symptoms developing in up to one-third of the normal participants in their research projects who attempt to make rational all this unexplained sources of arousal. One-third of the normal population manifesting uh, pathological symptoms as a result of all of this um, undocumented, uh, unresolved, Unexplained sense of arousal. You know, how many people do you know going along? You know, I, I just I'm anxious. I I, I feel like something about to happen, but I, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm having a premonition. Oh, I don't know. I just maybe I didn't sleep last night. But they're in this constant hypervigilant state. So you add that. That's one. To one. You know, I've lost myself. I really don't know who I am anymore. I'm so busy running here and there. And that equals two. And we can do that over and over again until what you've lost is your authentic self. And that's what Mm -hmm. we all need to gain. Mm -hmm. Well, it is ours. All this other stuff is
0: covering it up. It is there.
1: Of course. It's never been
0: gone. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't be walking around if we didn't have something authentic and genuine and the spiritual part of us, that life essence. Who we really are, you know, and and we we grow what we focus on. If we if we focus on our spiritual nature, and it does not have, you know, I think a lot of people think that has to be that's boring or something. That's not going to be entertaining, or you know what I'm saying? I mean, people are are just mm-hmm. so indoctrinated with uh, different ways of. You know, seeing things
1: that. Well, and and educated away from it. You know, more and more we see that with our younger generation on the college campuses with this whole new kind of intellectual elitism uh, championed by men like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, author of The God Delusion, who point out that bright minds don't believe that nonsense. That 90% of the science, the Royal Science Academy, are agnostic or atheist, uh, who write books as they did, who who are reductionistic materialists, who believe that science can explain everything, and science becomes the new religion, and awe, and mystery, and magic, well, that's all hocus-pocus nonsense, and and we see more and more of that influence in the world. We hear it from politicians. Their God clinging to their God and their guns. I mean, how are we supposed to translate that way? I mean, what, is, yeah. what does that mean? What is the what is the assault on what values? Uh, and, and it comes from both values. sides of the aisle. That one just came the values, you know.
0: I think people do, or don't have a, a touch, aren't in touch with values. I well, think we have, we have
1: to have down today to cultural relativity, and that's that's yeah. what we're taught, you know, and. And, and cultural relativity isn't that what you were talking about
0: with this dilemma that you were talking
1: about with the with the pregnant woman? Yeah, isn't absolutely. that cultural relativity? Where well, depending upon this beyond that. You know, you can take the man um, who buys a fourteen year old bride in Afghanistan and she fails to please him, so he cuts her ears and her nose off and throws her in the stable. This is a true story. She crawls away from the stable. She manages to get back home, but her father will have nothing to do with it because mm-hmm. she has embarrassed him, disgraced him right. uh, under the law of uh, Sharia. Uh, she eventually is taken in by uh, Women for Afghan Women, and I'm going to pitch them right now. It's a charity that I regularly contribute to, a great charity, Women for Afghan Women. Women for Women is the parent organization. Uh, At any rate, um, and and we learn about her because physicians in the United States volunteer to rebuild her. There are those, in fact, Neil Donald Walsh on my radio show argued that you can't blame this man for what he did because he knows no other way. You know, that is the cultural morality. Well, that cultural relativity I have a problem with. And and the problem arises from just fundamental value systems. You can call them the philosophies of all cultures through all time. But when you disregard, disrespect the right of life of another, you disrespect it of yourself.
0: Yes, it shows your own, exactly.
1: You know, an action of that kind is immoral wherever it occurs in the world. Is a reflection of your how you divinity. feel about
0: your own self
1: and oh, the relationship
0: yes. you have with your own divinity.
1: But we get these people that will climb on their high horse, you know, today in the world of politics. You know, we have this intervention going on in Libya because Gaddafi was using uh, his army against his own people. Well, guess who started to do it today? Syria. So now, are we going to intervene in Syria? It's happened in Iran before. We, we we isolate where we're going, and we are so inconsistent about how we apply our values. Yes, it's because they're all relative. Yes. Well, I'm I'm afraid that when your values are relative, you have none. Yes. Yes.
0: I I certainly can you know I totally agree with you I think it's you know that's our crisis it's a crisis of values having any sense of real core values to guide our life by so and you know we have to go on this you know truth is the ultimate spiritual journey and to me it's a fascinating journey it's fraught with all kinds of you know you know I mean it's I mean how could it the, the journey I mean it's the most fantastic journey you could ever be on here in this life <laughs> so I, I don't equate it with being boring at all or that it's not exciting or a thrilling journey and there's so much at stake I mean, I mean why would you think that's boring
1: <laughs> so you would only think it's boring if you failed to recognize that you could engage or if you refuse to engage. Yes. But you're going to find it boring if you've lost yourself and you find yourself, you know, as one of these false in need of constant stimulation, uh, running here and running there, planning yeah. what you're going to consume next, uh, worrying, you know, about what happens if you can't consume. Uh, if that's the circularity. I, I am yeah. so reminded when I was a child of, a, of Sambo's Tiger, you know, there's a story of a boy who got chased by a tiger in the jungle I don't know if you know this yeah. story or not but was an yeah. old kid well and, 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 and Sambo had this tiger eventually just going round and round and round him chasing his tail in wild pursuit and he melted down to be the butter for Sambo's pancakes well, you know, I see so many people so in pursuit of their tails <laughs> You know, when it's all said and done, uh, they're gonna have to do it over because the only thing that they're going to be is somebody up is butter. Or bit. Yep.
0: Yep. You need to live your life for yourself, your true self. Right. So what are the steps to a fully let's let's talk about a solution, you know, I know you also talk about it in your book, the steps to a fully lived life, uh, that results in our individual enlightenment and self realization. Eldon, well, do you, you want know. to speak about that? Uh, you know, kind of end our conversation with some hope here and instill some inspiration?
1: Right, I know we're about out of time. I mean, the first thing I'm going to say to everybody is, you know, be aware there's, there's a wonderful story of the Buddha. He's walking along the trail, uh, and am going to shorten it and go fast. Uh, a fellow comes on to him and falls down in front of him and says, My, You must be a god. The Buddha says, No, I'm not a god. He said, "Well, then you must be a demigod." And the Buddha says, "No, I'm not a demigod." He says, "Well, well, then what are you?" I mean, and the Buddha says, "I'm awake." You know, that's the real challenge for all of us. Mm -hmm. Progressive awareness research is where I've spent the last quarter century of my life—more than that Uh, now—and and and the theme is that we wake up a little bit at a time. You do that by taking responsibility for your own thoughts. Don't get trapped in these sound bites. Don't get trapped in these definitions. Evaluate the scenarios. Don't expect that there is going to be a one-size-fits-all uh, answer, solution. Uh, oh, I already, I, I've already considered this issue. No, 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 no. The issues change. They get yes. very dyna- uh, dynamic. Yes. It is the evaluation process that has the real merit because it's in that process yes. that you find the excitement KG talking about. Avoid the soundbite reasoning I've talked about. Uh, put yourself on both sides of the equation. Uh, try genuinely to practice the empathy unless you walked in the other man's shoes uh, metaphor, if you will. There's nothing new about that. Don't allow your voice to be one of passive consent. Don't just acquiesce. Do what you can do. If it's just to express it to your family, uh, to to the people around the water cooler at work. Or, you know, I saw today that the majority of Americans all belong to Facebook. Post it on your Facebook. Remember, uh, be willing to accept uncertainty. That's probably probably the most important thing. Be willing to, to accept uncertainty. If you think there is a hard, fast answer for everything in the world, You'll betray yourself before you can snap your fingers. Mm-hmm. And remember this. Whatever you pretend to be, be careful about it because we become what we pretend. Mm-hmm. Oh, very good.
0: Well, where can listeners go to find out more about and order your new book, What If, The Challenge of Self-Realization?
1: Well, they can go to my website, Eldon Taylor, E L D O N T A Y L O R dot com. If you go there now, uh, you'll see that the book is uh, on the page. Click on that, you'll see special offer. It'll take you to a new landing page where there are hundreds of gifts uh, being offered by a number of uh, visionaries, people that have uh, are leaders in the field, people like KG uh, that have read the book, believe the book is really worth you having, and they're. They're giving you uh, uh, something, uh, a, a special gift. Sometimes it's, a, it's an audio meditation file or an e-book or even hard uh, material. Uh, indeed, you can win a trip to the ICANN conference in uh, California this year, airfare, hotel, uh, tickets to it, uh, thousands of dollars in, in just gifts and prizes. Uh, So you know, go to EldonTaylor.com, again, E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R.com. Click on the book, What If, The Challenge uh, of Self-Realization, and then uh, you'll see all the gifts and you'll see all the prizes that you could win. And you'll be getting the book from Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, and Amazon, not from me, uh, but you'll be coming back with that receipt number in order to, to download your gifts.
0: Yes, and I also wanted to encourage people to sign Thank up for you. your. Yes, I wanted to encourage people to sign up for your free InterTalk newsletter as well. You also have some um, free uh, MP3 podcasts people can download to experience the InterTalk uh, technology for themselves. And uh, you want to mention, you want to talk about that, that. You know, they're well, full on. They're for all sorts of different.
1: That's very true. Uh, we have a link on my website uh, to InterTalk, and uh, years ago uh, in a prison study, I learned the power of forgiveness, and I have since applied that. The basics of that program to Fortune 500 executives, elite Olympic athletes, uh, uh, you know, just uh, you name it. Hospice centers to to truck drivers, and found the real power that is involved in in releasing uh, the anger, the aggression, the hostility, etc. that you can hold towards people where you haven't perfected this idea of forgiveness. That started the notion of, look, this is so fundamental, let's just give it away. So we took our number one best selling intertalk program and turned it into a free program and you can download it as a free MP three. Well that triggered off more and so now there are many programs there that are yours. They're not samples. It's a real deal. Uh, Go download them, and we we hope that they facilitate you, help you. It's just a part of our own pay-it-forward.
0: Yes, I just want to remind everybody to please do check out Eldon's new book, What If? The Challenge of Self-Realization, just released by Hay House. Visit him on his radio show, Provocative Enlightenment, on hayhouseradio.com every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific. And have a beautiful day, everyone. A warm mahalo. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Eldon. It's always a pleasure having you with us.
1: Oh, I love joining you, and I enjoyed this conversation very, very much, KG. Thank you for the opportunity.